is the horror old-time radio tales of terror that you can find every saturday at relicradio.com we're gonna hear from the hall of fantasy this week a series that debuted over station k-a-l-l in salt lake city utah during the late 1940s had a short run there until may of 1947 this is the final episode of that original season it would return to radio in 1949 air until 1953 having moved to wgn in chicago our story this week is the mark of shame This one aired May 4th, 1947. Ladies and gentlemen, the Granite Furniture Company with stores in Sugar House, Murray, and Provo presents... The Hall of Fantasy. Welcome to the Hall of Fantasy. Welcome to the series of radio dramas dedicated to the supernatural, the unusual, and the unknown. Come with me, my friends. We shall descend to the world of the unknown and forbidden, down to the depths where the veil of time is lifted, and the supernatural reigns as king. Come with me and listen to the tale of The Mark of Shame. The Granite Furniture Company brings you the Hall of Fantasy. Listen now to original tales of the imagination and some of the classics of the supernatural as we take you down the corridors of the Hall of Fantasy to the mysterious realms of the unknown. These are stories of eerie and fantastic thrills brought to you by your friends at the Granite Furniture Stores. And now for tonight's story, an adaptation by Robert Olson entitled The Mark of Shame. That blood fed his hates, his prides, his willful ego till the end of time and beyond. Yes, and that same blood flushed a vivid red mark of shame in Andre's fair young face. It was phenomenal, nothing like I'd ever seen before, nothing certainly like the welts in a child's tender back. This mark never faded from his handsome, womanish cheek. As usual, it had started over a wound. This happened at a masquerade ball given in the Palais Royal. A logical setting for quarrels over women, or privileges, or just quarrels. It was a gay affair. 
the women who followed in the footsteps of Philip of Orleans were likely grounds for controversy. One could hardly refer to their love as steadfast, for their favors swung from one brightly caped courtier to the other, from a fallen sword to a victorious one, to the swiftness of death itself. But such were our times, and in this colorful gathering, it was not difficult to recognize the predominant shade as a blood red. No need to mention the woman's name. It makes no difference anyway. She was not the issue. The issue was that Andre de Brissac, darling of the court, had been shamed, and I had dealt the smarting blow. I remember that moment with amazing detail. It was as if everything in that ballroom had suddenly been caught in startling paralysis of time, poised between one tick of the clock and another, one heartbeat and the next. Even the note of the music hung suspended, undecided whether to fly out the rich windows or fall in splendor like a Christmas ornament. I remember the dancers caught midway in the step, their faces turned toward me, the frozen gasp of the woman in question, sound that seemed barely to clear her lips, and paused in the awful highlight of that instant. And in Andre's eyes, poised the sharp, tempered steel of hatred and humiliation. Then, as if some unseen conductor waved the baton, the room was once more animated. The clock completed its tick, the heart its beat, and the note its soaring flight. The hatred of Andre de Brissac flushed from the eye to the heart to the brain, thence to the voice that made it live in my memory forever. The most amazing phenomena occurred a moment later, but he still stared at me. For to Andre, there came a crimson blush of shame, clearly outlined by the very form of my hand, in the exact spot where it had landed a flashing, stinging slap. So it was that on that dim August dawn, Andre and I crossed one of the bridges that led to the ground beyond the church of Saint-Germain-des-Prés to fight a duel over a beautiful viper of the court of Philip of Orléans. Andre stood there opposite me with his two young friends at his side. They were all scoundrels, including my cousin, sorry to say. They seemed eager for this sport. We must have made a strange sight in that golden sunrise hour. We had just come from the Regent Saloon, still in the costumes we'd worn the night before. I was adorned, if adorn is the proper word for it, as a Mississippi Indian, while Andre wore a unique hunting habit, copied from a portrait that hung in the library of Puy Verdun, the family chateau. The orange and purple of his adornment looked pale in this early light. The mark on his face was all the more vivid. I am ready, cousin. Andre, when this is over, no matter what happens, will you promise me one thing? Please. When this is over, one of us will be standing the other dead. That's the only promise I care to make now. That's true, Andre. But you force me into a situation for which I have no appetite. I'm a soldier, Andre. It is my business to cut down my enemy. Now, I'm the better sort. That's why we must talk now or not at all. Then if you don't mind, cousin, we'll make it not at all. As for your, as for your being a better swordsman... You'll do me the honor of proving your skill. Your curly locks have sabotaged your good judgment, sir. The captivating ladies of the court shall miss their nimble tongue, darling. Ah, oh, but they shan't miss his boorish cousin. Enough of this. On guard! On guard, cousin! <coughs> you stand well, my merry fellow of fortune. But I could teach you much. Conserve your breath, cousin! Ah, your beautiful face, Andre. Your parry was poor. I saw his tip with crimson. Your lovely powder bear would swoon to see that. It goes ill for you, I fear. You blowed over a scratch. Andre was really quite skillful, but not skillful enough. 
My contention that the court's fencing master could never compare to the art of learn or die brutality of battle proved correct. I mortally wounded Andre, and instantly I was mortally sorry. Life had been sweet for him as he lay there on the ground, the golden morning sun giving his beautiful peaches a pitiful glow. I thought I saw a look of despair come into his eyes. He realized that his lifeblood was ebbing away like a tide that would never return. He beckoned to me, and I walked over to him and knelt at his side. Andre, forgive me. Listen to me, Hector de Brazac. This is not the end of us. I am not done with the earth. Just because my jaw was soon stiffened and my eyes glaze over, they will bury me in the old vault of Guiva Dun. But that is not the end either. You will be the master of the chateau. They may even laugh to think that Andre has been killed in a duel. They will sing masses to my soul. I will be done with them all. You have accomplished that, Hector. But you and I have not finished our business. I will be with you when you least know me. Andre de Brazac, with an ugly scar on the face that women have praised their love. Come back when your life is its merriest. At your happiest moment, I will come between you and all that you hold dear. And when this hand is a ghostly thing, dear cousin, I shall drop a poison poison into your cup of happiness. I shall stand between you and the sun for the rest of your life. Don't not my will, Hector de Brazac. I can do as I please. And it pleases me to haunt you when I am dead. Did not doubt the iron will of Andre. As he lay his head back on the dewy earth, never to lift it again, the chill breath of early morning touched me with inexpressible loneliness. I looked at him as he lay in his fresh, one world of sleep. How fragile he seemed, built only for lace cuffs and bright buckles. I could see why he had been such a favorite. I could almost, even now, catch the fiery twinkle of those clear eyes. And no one who knew the short manhood of my cousin could deny the great force of his tempestuous nature. No, I looked down upon that young face which I had marked so foully. was sorry for what I had done, truly sorry. As for the curse, I took no heed of the blasphemous threats. I was a soldier. I had seen many men die for my own sword. Andre had done me a cruel wrong. I couldn't have forgiven it. Men had died cursing me before. Men who had loved life as rapturously as Andre. One more curse was... Well, one more curse. I put it out of my mind. A very foolish thing to do. Andre's death had made me rich. But I found no pleasure in the wealth. This chateau, which had rung so with the raucous laughter of Andre's friend, became quiet and lonely. None of the servants showed me the slightest sign of friendliness. Even in the village, the children would shrink from me as I rode through. That's why I was so happy when the servant announced that Monsieur le Directeur was waiting to see me. Dr. Corday, I'm delighted, monsieur. Oh, thank you, my lord. I, I have some medical reports on the patients in the village. I thought you might want to look them over. I know nothing about such things, Corday. 
there's no ravaging epidemic, I should be happy to dispense with it altogether. Oh, there's nothing to fear. The usual aches and our share of deaths and, and our share of babies. Uh, good, Doctor. Will you join me? Well, I... Uh... Do, Monsieur. Thank you. Dr. Corday, what do the people in the village say about me? Say? Why, why the people love you, my lord. You can dispense with them, my lord, Corday. I'm a soldier not to court dandy. What do the people really say? Shall I tell you? Of course you should tell me. Why do you suppose I asked you? Oh, monsieur, forgive me. This is a bitter life. I have no taste for it. I'd rather be a soldier. I really would. Well, in that case, you'd be quite interested in hearing what the people of the village say. What is that? Uh, That you have sold your soul to the evil one for your cousin's heritage. That's really funny, doctor. Really very funny. I never wanted this life. Never once. I wouldn't hesitate a moment to trade it for a place in His Majesty's troops. What you need is a wife, my lord. A wife? I can't even win the sympathetic ear of a friend, let alone the heart of a lady. Uh, It's a very gay season in Paris right now, my lord. You should find an angel there to take compassion on you. Paris? A marvelous idea. At least I can be my own man there. Doctor, I'm grateful for your visit. Come in again when I return. With uh, a wife? Who knows? In Paris, I ran into an old comrade, a sulky, sour old captain of dragoons. Many times he'd aired his displeasures to me. He told me a great many things about himself. But one thing he should have talked about, he never even mentioned. That was that he had a perfect sunbeam for a daughter. That her name was... Can you hear the music as I say it? Eveline. Eveline Buckley. Eveline, I've been a fool. Is it wise to tell me, monsieur? Wise or not, I must. Eveline, I've been a soldier all my life. I know little about what pleases a lady. When I take your hand, I'm filled with the fear that you will not feel as I do that there's someone else. There is no one, monsieur. Thank you. Eveline, I've wasted the best years of my youth worshipping the wicked woman who cheated me and finally made a fool of me. She was the fool, monsieur. Bless you for saying that, Eveline. Well, you must know what I'm trying to say. Uh, I'm told women do know. I love you, Eveline. I want you to go back to Puyvedanle. Oh, monsieur. As my wife, will you? You will have to speak to my father. Forgive me, but I already have. Oh, you are a soldier, monsieur. But uh, what is your answer, Eveline? I will marry you. Oh, Eveline, my adorable one. This is... Yes, go on. Is anything the matter? No. No, of course not. This is... The happiest moment of my life. You are listening to The Mark of Shame on tonight's journey down the corridors of the Hall of Fantasy. Brought to you by your friends at the Granite Furniture Company with stores in Sugar House, Murray, and Provo. And now, back to tonight's story, The Mark of Shame. Quiverdun was not the sordid, lonely place I had left. The difference was my charming bride. Now, when I rode through the village, the children actually crowded about our carriage. They no longer feared the Debussac who sat beside the lady. Her charities had won her their love and transformed the gloomy lord into a gentle master. They even forgot the untimely death of my cousin. And I no longer hesitated with that strange catch in my throat to tell her about it. Eveline, I never knew I could be so happy. Why, too, Hector. I'm happier than I ever dreamed. Even the villagers feel it. 
They used to avoid me like a plague. You only imagine that. Why should they avoid such a gentle master? Maybe it's because you've made me so, Evelyn. I feel like a traveler who's just been transplanted from the frozen Arctic wastes to the heart of some green and friendly valley. It's almost... Oh, I don't know, darling. Sometimes I doubt it. Why, dearest? It seems almost fantastic to be so happy. I could be aroused so rudely at any moment with a coarse shout of reality. You aren't dreaming, husband. I won't allow it. Well, you know, if you were, I would be too, and I wouldn't like that. See what I mean? Nothing like this ever happened to me before. It's like standing in the bright sun. Hector? Yes? Who's the lord of the chateau nearest to this? What? Who is he, Hector? Darling, don't you realize that this is the only chateau within 40 miles? That's strange. Why? Because I, I saw him again yesterday. Him? Whom did you see? I don't know now. Suppose you tell me about it. Well, in my walks about the park and woods in the past month, I keep meeting a man who, who appears to be of a noble rank. Of noble rank? Are you sure you don't mean a peasant? No. His dress and his bearing was that of a nobleman. I couldn't have mistaken that. I imagine that he must occupy some chateau near Guiverdan. That's not possible, Evelyn. We're in the heart of a desolate region. No. That couldn't be possible. Well, come here a moment. Yes, monsieur? See the picture there on the wall? This one, monsieur? No, the one next to it. That's right. I want you to... Yes, monsieur? I want a curtain hung over that picture as soon as possible. Understand? Oui, monsieur. Good. Now bring some tea to your lady's drawing room. In spite of myself, I was disturbed by Evelyn's visitant. That night I asked her more about it. Evelyn, this man you say you saw... Say I saw. I did, in fact, I do see him. How often? Every day. Every day where? Sometimes in the park and sometimes in the wood. You know that little cascade and the old rock work that makes a sort of a cavern? Yes, I know the place. I used to play there with... I used to play there as a boy. Oh, I love it. I spend my mornings there reading. And that's where you saw... See him? Yes. Has he ever had the courage to address you? Never. I look up from my book and he'll be standing there very quietly, watching me. Then I'll continue with my reading and when I look up again, he's gone. He must be some peasant out to frighten you. I'll go into the village tomorrow and see what I can find out. No, Hector, he's not a peasant. He has the manner of a nobleman. I suppose he's quite old. On the contrary, he's young and quite handsome. For the next week, I spent my mornings with Evelyn. We took many casual rambles into the woods and park. But we saw no one but a few peasants or occasionally a member of our own chateau. These works were beginning to disturb the routine of my life. And since I was a man of rather deeply ingrained habits, my wife noticed the unrest. There's no need to take these walks with me, Hector. You know, you have other things to do. I'll spend my mornings on the grounds, and the stranger can't intrude on me there. <laughs> I'm beginning to think the stranger is your own fantasy, darling. You've probably met too many handsome cavaliers in your books. No doubt he's some Persian prince in modern costume. Hector, that's what puzzles me. The stranger's costume isn't modern. Shall I tell you what it looks like? By all means. Well, he looks as if he's been in an old portrait that had stepped down from his frame. It wouldn't have been a more startling blow if she'd butted me in the stomach with the end of a staff. I thought of the picture in the library with the orange and purple hunting costume Andre had worn that fateful night in the Palais Royale. Then something else happened to take my mind from the picture, Andre, or anything else. For after a time, my wife, who had always been as lovely and glowing as the fresh petal of a rose, 
began to fail in her health. The change seemed to have stolen up on her. Even I, who had seen her every day, hadn't noticed it until one day she put on a lovely gown she hadn't worn in several months. I was amazed how loosely it hung on her. Then I noticed her eyes. Eyes that had at one time sparkled as bright as the jewel she planted in her hair. They were now quite dim and sick. Darling, how long have you been ill? I'm not ill, Hector. That's insane. You are ill. Quite seriously so, I might add. Stupid of me not to notice it before. What's done this? I... Oh, I, I feel faint. I... And she fainted. I caught her in my arms and swept her to her bed. Then I sent a messenger for Dr. Corday. Tell him to come immediately. I don't want a single moment's delay, understand? Yes, monsieur. I stood there as helpless as a child and watched my lovely Eveline seem to waste away with this insidious thing. I cursed every moment of delay before Dr. Corday arrived. When he did come, I rushed him to her room before he even had a chance to remove his cape. Then I sat and poured myself a drink for the torturous weight. Even before he came out to speak to me, I, for no explainable reason, had lost faith in the powers of medicine to combat the thing that had struck down my Evelyn. Strange, very strange. Doctor, is she... Frankly, I, I don't know. I just don't know, my lord. Monsieur le docteur, I, I mean, well, I was beginning to be afraid that she may be a little... Well, Dr. Corday, this isn't easy to say. Well, then, let me say it for you. You're wondering if she's insane. Let me assure you that she is not. Oh, thank heaven. She's been seeing some... Well... Oh, you mean this strange visitant? Yes, she spoke of it. It's it's possible that she may be suffering from some sort of illusion at that. But she's so rational on all the other accounts. I think that this person is quite real, at least to the eye. Usually, uh... A monomaniac tells very incoherent stories of their illusions. Hers is no such thing. She speaks as calmly and rationally as you and I. Are you positive that there is no one who can encounter her in her walks about the garden? I don't see how. The moat is ten feet wide and continually flooded with water. Raoul keeps the lock secured day and night. No, I don't see how it's possible. Well, perhaps someone related to your household in some way. A young man with a fair womanish face and... A crimson scar that looks... Uh, that looks as if it might have been the mark of a violent blow. Oh, no. The dress, Doctor. How is he dressed? In a hunting costume. A purple and orange hunting costume. Doctor, this... Oh, no. What can I do? Right now, my lord, you'd better go in and see Lady de Brissac. She's asked for you. Darling, how are you? Oh, Hector. Evelyn, why haven't you told me? The doctor says you've seen the stranger again. I see him every day. What's killing me? I rushed down to the library, took down the portrait, and showed it to my wife. She looked at it and trembled like a leaf. She clung to me as if she were about to fall into some nameless chasm. It's witchcraft, but the costume is the very same. His face to me, line for line, even to the cruel mark my hand had left. I knew that Andre de Bissac had come back to keep his promise. I took Evelyn away. We traveled through the southern provinces and on into the heart of Switzerland. I wanted to outdistance the phantom. It was no good. He followed us everywhere we went. 
Never did I see him. Always Eveline. That type of vengeance had Andre's touch. He used my wife's innocent heart as his cruel weapon. His constant unholy intrusion was destroying her. Nor could I shield her or drive Andre from her. He's here even now, Hector. As you stand there and I here, he stands between us. He'll never let me rest nor let me forget. Thus it was I fought like a madman against something I couldn't see, fought through this terrible void to get back to the side of my beloved wife. And then, a short time later... We were in a Tyrolean village. It was a brilliant moonlit night. I was about to speak a word of encouragement to Evelyn when she spoke. Hector, I'm going to tell you something so strange and terrible that you'll probably hate me forever. Hate you? Why, my poor darling. Oh, no, please, don't sympathize with me. I, I won't be able to tell you, and I must tell you, I must. Darling, you're just tired. What you need is some Hector, rest. Hector, I'm dying. No. No, Evelyn, you're not. Yes, I know it. That's why I must say what I have to say. I won't listen. You must listen. At first, when I began to see the stranger in the park, I, I shrank from him. He seemed terrible to me. Day after day, he came. Then one day, I, I wasn't afraid anymore. I found that I was thinking about him, watching for him. Then for a while, I, I didn't see him. Was that when I was with you? Yes. Even then, when I was with you, I, I found that I was desolate without him. Evelyn, you don't know what you're saying. Oh, believe me, Hector, I do. I wouldn't blame you if you killed me. But I began to count the hours to the time when I, I'd see him next. He took all the old joys from my heart and left me nothing but the unholy pleasure of his presence. Now, Hector, curse me, kill me, anything. Only know this. Whatever it was, witchcraft, the imperfections of my heart, I don't know. I only know I fought against it and couldn't win. Now I'm dying. Oh, forgive me if you can. Forgive you? What is there to forgive, my darling? This is no work of yours. Oh, I mean, my wife, forget everything but that you're in my arms. Forget everything except that we love each other. I'm dying, Hector. I'm dying. No. Fight it, Evelyn. Please try to fight it. I, I need you. I, I can't live without you. Believe me, Hector. I, I want to die. I want to be with you. Her eyes fluttered and she was gone. Something more than the cruel lash of her words hit me. Even though I was barely conscious, I felt it. I got up and ran to the mirror. Sure enough, there it was. That vivid outline of the hand. Pulled across my cheek. So runs the tale of The Mark of Shame. Remember to join us next week at the same time for another journey down the corridors of the Hall of Fantasy. Tonight's program was adapted from Miss Braddon's story, Eveline's Visitant. By Robert Olson. Heard tonight were Richard Thorne as Hector, Beth Calder as Eveline, Archie Hugely as Andre, Ken Jensen as Dr. Corday, and Michael Arogo as Raoul. 
Musical background was provided by Earl Donaldson. The engineer was Nephi Sorensen. These programs are produced and directed by Richard Thorne. Remember, be with us again next Sunday night on call at 9.30 when the Granite Furniture Stores in Sugar House, Murray, and Provo will take you on another journey down the corridors of the Hall of Fantasy. That's the horror for this week. I hope you enjoyed it. You can find a lot more from the Hall of Fantasy at relicradio.com alongside all the other Relic Radio podcasts, our shoutcast stream, Lots to listen to, all for free, thanks to your support. If you'd like to help out, visit donate.relicradio.com. It's how all of this is made possible. Thanks again to those who have. Thanks for joining me today. Be back next Saturday with another episode of The Horror.